people, just a couple of announcements before I get started. Um, the reason that I'm preaching in the place of Pastor Jonathan is because he's preaching this evening for our special uh, prayer meeting and, and time of worship together. So I'm pinch hitting for him in, in the book of Jonah, and hopefully I'll be able to keep something of his continuity that we've been going on the last several weeks as we've moved through this book. Also, secondly, for those of you who didn't catch where your kids are going to be this evening, let me just let me just reread that list um, provided by Chris Houston to us. Uh, kindergarten and under, you're going to be in the nursery. Um, first and through fifth grade will be in the MCTS room right behind me. Middle schoolers will be in the old library down the hall, and high schoolers will be in the new library beside the MCTS classroom. Let's pray together before we dive into the scriptures this morning. Father, I stand here, we all sit here as as needy, needy people this morning, needy for you to speak your word to us in a way that is clear, in a way that is powerful, in a way that is helpful and life-changing and worldview-shaping. And so we ask that you would do that this morning, that you would that you would enter into our lives through the preach word by your spirit and give light. Not just light to our understanding, although we want that, but light to our hearts, which will yield life in our hands and our feet and our mouths and our entire being. We pray for an applied word this morning, not merely a heard word. A heard word does little, but an applied word does incalculable good. And so we pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would help us to understand what you are doing here in the life of Jonah and in the life of the Ninevites and what that would have to do with us as we sit here this morning. So I submit myself to you and ask that you would speak through me, keep me from saying things that are in error or unhelpful or imbalanced or just plain wrong. Father, would you please guide us as we sit before your word this morning? I don't stand under your over your word. I sit under it humbly. We all sit under it humbly. We are addressed by you. We don't address you. We sit here as those who need to be taught, who need to be corrected, who need to be led, who need to be encouraged, who need a vision of you and your ways. We don't sit here as those who critique your word. We sit here as those who listen to it and are shaped by it. And so bless us as we do that, as we receive the implanted word with meekness. Save our souls, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What is the greatest gift that a person could receive? This is the season for thinking about those kinds of things. We want to give good gifts. We want to give thoughtful gifts to those we love. We want to give gifts that will cheer the hearts of our children as they wake up on Christmas morning and look at the tree and We want to give gifts and thoughtful gifts to our wives and our husbands that will encourage them and bless them and show our love for them. But if God were shopping for you and went to Amazon, what would he type in for you? What is the greatest gift 
that he can give you? Well, some of us would say, well, it's Jesus. Jesus is God's greatest gift to us, and that would certainly be absolutely right. But it takes more than the mere giving of a histor- of the historical person, Jesus Christ, to, to do anything for us. The fact that Jesus came into history as the eternal son of God, the fact that he was born in Bethlehem, that he was raised by Mary and Joseph, and that he took the job of a carpenter, and he began his public ministry at age 30, and began preaching and teaching and healing and visiting places, only to find contempt from the religious leaders, put on an unjust trial, crucified on a cross, raised three days later, ascend up to the right hand of God where he sits currently. That does absolutely nothing for you unless God gives you another gift. And that gift is repentance. And that gift is what God gave to a city in this passage that we read today. Repentance in the Bible is described as a gift. You're familiar with the passages, I'm sure. Acts 5, verse 31, talks about God granting or gifting or giving repentance. Acts eleven eighteen says something very similar. And 2 Timothy 2, 25 talks about God perhaps giving repentance to those who oppose us. So in order for anybody to repent, God has to give them that gift. And the only reason that you sit here this morning as a repenting, believing Christian is because God gave you that gift. And that gift, like Cousin Eddie said in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, is the gift that keeps on giving year-round. That's a very silly analogy for a very precious, precious gift. God has given that to you to live in your soul by the power of his spirit so that you will have a constant check in your spirit that will bring, bring you and continually lead you back to God as you stray from him. So that gift, repentance, is a precious gift, and it's the greatest gift God could possibly give to anyone. Now what is it? What is it? I want to, there's lots of ways to define repentance, but I want to submit to you this definition as we work through this passage of this morning. Repentance is turning to God from ourselves and all that includes to God for the sake of God. It is turning to God from ourselves for the sake of God. For God's sake, to get God. That's fundamentally what repentance is all about. It's a turning from our ways to God. And we're going to see that in this story this morning. Three points to my sermon this morning as we just trace down, trace out the narrative and follow the flow of the story. We're going to see three things. Number one, Jonah is sent. Number two, Nineveh repents. And number three, God relents. Those are the three points. Jonah is sent, Nineveh repents, and God 
relents, and we're going to make application to ourselves as we work through those three points this morning. So, to begin with, Jonah is sent. Now, Pastor Jonathan's been giving us the biography of Jonah the last couple chapters, and he's done a great job of reminding us what Jonah's all about and what he's like. And we're not finished with Jonah. There's another person that's going to need to repent in this story besides the Ninevites, and it's Jonah in chapter 4, and we're going to see that, Lord willing, next week. But Jonah has been restored to his post as a prophet. He's gone. He, he was in the beginning of the story. He receives the commission from God to go to the Ninevites and preach to them. And his nationalistic, ethnic pride, which we see in chapter 4, will not permit him to do it. And so he flees. He gets on a boat, heads to Tarshish. On board that boat, God sends the storm because he's going after Jonah. Jonah gets tossed overboard, spends three days in the belly of a fish. Praise gets thrown up onto the shore, and God comes to him again and says, Jonah, have you learned your lesson? Jonah, do you get the point? Jonah, I'm coming to you again. Here's the same commission. Arise, go to Nineveh, and preach to them the word that I have for you to tell them. So Jonah, in verse 3, arises and goes. Now, Jonah has not experienced, and we're going to see this in chapter 4, Jonah has not experienced a, a full repentance. He really hasn't. The thing that is getting him to go to Nineveh is not the compassion of God has now filled his heart. The purpose of God has now shaped his life and he's off. He just doesn't want to go back to the fish. He doesn't want to get back on that boat and have that storm happen again. His his motives are purely self-protecting. He's like, it's better to go there than what I've just been through the last 72 hours. I don't have any desire to sit in that environment anymore. I'm going to Nineveh. So he does. He obeys. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, verse 3, according to the word of the Lord. And so Jonah is sent. And we read about what he does in the middle of verse 3. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great City. Nineveh at that time was the capital of Assyria, modern day Iraq. And it was the largest city of that day. Some hundred thousand people, which was gigantic. Some commentators think it was actually a collection of several cities together with large walls surrounding the whole city up to a hundred feet tall. And Nineveh was a giant city. It was a great city. It had many people in it. And it was not just a great city, it was a wicked and violent city. We see that in chapter 3, verse 8, at the end, where the king says, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This was a violent place. I wish I could share with you some of the things I heard about ancient Nineveh. It would gross you out how violent. This city was slaughtering innocent lives consistently. A violent and aggressive and terrible and wicked people. But it was an exceedingly great city. 
And in the Hebrew, it says it was a, Nineveh was an exceedingly, an exce- or a great city, a city to God. It was a great city to God. What God focused on, although he knew about it, he, he looked at that city, he saw the wickedness, he saw the violence. But what he focused on was their need for mercy, their need for compassion, their need for repentance. What Jonah focused on was their need for judgment, was their need to be punished. And that's what got him so bent out of shape to begin with. He looked at that as a moral, religious person, and he said, you're kidding me, right? God, you are kidding me. You're going to send me to this city? You're going to forgive those people? You're going to have compassion on them? Are you crazy? No, you need to repeat Sodom and Gomorrah. You need to rain down fire and brimstone on them because I guarantee they're just as worse as those cities were. Do that, God. And God says, no, you're going and you're going to preach. And Jonah does not like that. And we're going to see why he doesn't like it in the next chapter. But Jonah has experienced sort of a transformation. He has experienced a radical life-shaping event. I mean, a, a storm at sea that would have scared you to death and a trip to the fish that would have freaked you out. I mean, he has been through a life-shaping... He's made some memories, hasn't he? <laughs> he has made some memories. And he doesn't want to go back there And so God sends him to the large city of Nineveh. In verse 4, it says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, just a word before we get into that statement. We can sometimes think, or we can be, uh, I think, a little bit too optimistic to think that Jonah kind of went through a kind of an Ebenezer Scrooge kind of transformation, right? You remember what happened to Ebenezer Scrooge, right? He was shown the dreams, the ghosts of Christmas past, and all of his past came up before him, and a look at the future showed him what his life was going to amount to at the end, and it freaked him out. And it changed his life, and it made him a generous, loving man on Christmas morning. Jonah hasn't gone through the Ebenezer Scrooge transformation. He's had a life-shaping event similar to Scrooge, but the results have not been the same. But we do see this much has happened. He went. He got to the walls at the gates of the city. He went into the city, and he started preaching. And he preached exactly what God wanted him to preach. Now, this statement, in 40, yet for 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown, that's not all that Jonah said. It wasn't like he walked around saying to every single person in Nineveh, all the thousands, yet 40 days, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. Hey, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. Hey, God's going to judge. Hey, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. Hey, this is getting really old, God. Hey, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. He didn't do that. Probably what he did was 
As he made his way into the city and preached throughout the city, he began proclaiming their sin, which is what he wanted to proclaim, and he probably preached it hard, too. He went right after them and their immorality and preached it like a good fundamentalist moralist. Went right after them. Said, listen to me. God is going to judge you if you don't repent. This city, you remember what's going to happen? Let me tell you about Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a wicked city. God rained down fire and brimstone, burnt the whole thing up. That's the same word that's used in that account as the word that's used in our account, for it shall be overthrown. This city is going to be turned upside down if you don't repent. And what happens is the city gets turned upside down, but not in the way that Jonah wants it to happen. Jonah's walking around preaching the judgment of God. He's doing exactly what God sent him to do. And so Jonah is sent. He obeys God's word. He preaches God's message. And what happens? Point number two. Nineveh repents. Verse five. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Stop there. This is where repentance starts. It doesn't say the people of Nineveh believed Jonah. Although that is true. What they heard in Jonah was the voice of God. And that's where repentance starts. Repentance doesn't start by hearing a preacher. It is hearing God through the preacher. It is believing not so much what the preacher says because the preacher's saying it. It's believing the preacher because that's what God has said. And that's what the Ninevites do. They believe God. In other words, they heard that in 40 days, Nineveh's going to be judged by God. Your city's going to be overthrown. And they heard that and they believed it. They believed it. Text tells us the people of Nineveh believed it. And so what did they do? How did they respond after they believed? Well, they called for a fast into verse 5 and they put on sackcloth. From the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and set it in ashes. Verse 7, he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. And we'll get to that proclamation in a second. I think what the writer's doing, if it's Jonah, possibly, but what the writer's doing is bringing us what happened in Nineveh first in verses four, or verse 5. And then walking us back in verse 6 and 7, taking a step back and saying, okay, how'd that happen? What I think happened was Jonah began preaching, and the word reached the king. That's spreading pretty fast. And it's impacting society to a point where now the king's got to be involved in this. So the word reached the king, and then he called for the fast, and he called for sackcloth to be put on the people. From the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, what's the significance of that? He called for a fast. He called for them, as we see in verse 7, to refrain both people and animals. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. There's the fast. Don't eat anything. 
Don't taste anything. Don't drink anything. You or anybody else. Nobody in your family. None of your kids. No cereal this morning. Nothing. Meals are not important. Cities about to be destroyed. Your lives are at stake. Let's get serious. That's the king. And the king is probably doing this, again, just like Jonah, for self-preservation. This probably isn't the first time the king's ever heard a threat like this. A threat that we're wicked and the gods of the world are going to judge us. No. What he hears is destruction's coming to my city. My people are in unrest. So let's do something that might stop this. Let's do something that might stop it. I think it's probably more political than spiritual. Which is even more amazing when we look at the compassion of God. But this is probably more political than spiritual. But he calls for the people and their animals, verse 8, to be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Now, the significance of putting on sackcloth, sackcloth is literally that. It was cloth that was used to make sacks. And the significance of that, we see that all throughout Scripture as people are repenting. And it's an outward demonstration of an inner spiritual feeling or reality. It's saying, let's take off our nice clothes and let's put on clothes that more that fit us that, and that remind us of the way we look to God. We are poor and we are helpless. That's the significance of sackcloth. We are helpless. We are poor. We don't have anything. We need mercy. So he called for them to put on sackcloth and to put on and to begin fasting. And he noticed he did this and called everyone to do this from the greatest of them to the least of them. That is everyone from the oldest people in the city to the youngest children. Everyone was called to fast, put on sackcloth and pray to God for mercy. Verse six adds another element. The king himself arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And as I read that, I thought, you know what? That is a great illustration of exactly what repentance is all about. Repentance is you and me getting off the throne and getting on our face before God. That's what repentance is. You are born running your life. And it has gotten us the past it has gotten us. You're made by God, made for God. And when we try to run our lives our way as the king of our own Nineveh, we get in trouble with God. And what happens is the king gets up, gets off the throne, and takes a posture of humility. That is a gift from God. If anybody does that, if you are doing that today, it is because God has worked in your life. If you have resigned yourself and said, you know what? I don't call the shots anymore. I don't get to be Lord of my life. I'm stepping down off the throne and giving God the throne. 
And you don't just say that. It shows up in your life. Moment by moment, in your attitudes, in your decisions. It's not just a churchy thing to say because you live in the South. It's real, functionally, in your home, in your parenting, in your marriage, in your church attendance, in your witness, in your job. You don't call the shots anymore. That's what it is. I am his. And that will show up. In your life, all over the place, in every dimension of your life. And that's what repentance is. Humbling ourselves, getting off the throne, believing God's word, crying out to God. And notice, verse 8, let everyone turn. This is the last what the king says. Let everyone turn from his evil way. And from the violence that is in his hands. That is where repentance really shows up in the life of a person. It's not just they do a lot of humble things. They say they're sorry a lot. They, um, they cry out to God and pray a lot in their desperate situation. Oh, God, help me. I'm a repentant person. I'm not willing to change, but I'm repenting. Or the person who says, look, God, I'm fasting. Look, God, I'm praying. Look, God, I'm doing all this. God rebuked Israel over and over for doing stuff like that. You do all the right stuff. You do all the ceremonies. But you don't want to give it up. You don't want to turn from your wicked ways. You don't want to, as the text says, get the violence out of your hands. To turn from your evil. Not willing to do that. And if you're not willing to do that, you're not willing to repent. And that is what we see in the Ninevites. They believe God's word. They humble themselves, they cry out to God, and the king says, turn from your evil. Verse 9, who knows, he says, who knows? God might turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He says, who knows, if we repent, God might. If we repent, God might repent. Now, not, God's not turning from any evil ways, but God might turn. God might turn. And so we see that Nineveh does indeed repent. And let me just stop here and ask you as a, as a pastor who loves you. Is this characteristic of your life? I'm not saying do you go into your clothes closet and you got a sackcloth there. You know, but go into your soul. Do you have a sackcloth there? Do you have a sackcloth in your soul? Not just in your clothes closet. I don't think any, if you do, you're weird, and you just need to get rid of that <laughs> or wear it next week so we can all laugh at you. <laughs> no, but do you have it in your soul, and do you have it, do you have, has your sin and the reminder of your sin, ongoing reminders of your sin, does that lead you to greater and greater humility? 
and greater and greater awareness of your own wickedness and your own brokenness and your own need for a Savior? And does it lead you to cry out to God and plead for his mercy and turn? This is like, this is, this is Christian life 101, right? If we were to talk to anybody in this room who's walking with the Lord right now, we would say, yes, characteristic of my life is repentance. It's one of the big things in my life. I'm sorry, God. I say that a lot to God. I'm sorry. Please forgive me for my sins. I turn from them and I turn to you. I trust in Jesus Christ alone for the full forgiveness of all of my sins. And I thank you that in Christ I have received that. And now I get up and I walk forward by grace with a fresh realization of my, 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 my need for you, the poverty that I live in, not physical, spiritual, my fresh awareness of my need for your ongoing cleansing and grace and forgiveness of me. I'm a humble, humbled person. Is that you? Or are you more like Jonah? Outwardly, very moral, very religious, attending the services, voting in the business meetings. But inside your heart is not broken for your sin. You're angry that God goes on forgiving people who don't deserve it, like you. Check yourself. See if you see yourself in Jonah. I know I see some of myself in Jonah, and it scares me sometimes. And it shows me yet again my need for Christ and his forgiveness. And just because we live in the Bible Belt, like Jonathan mentioned this morning, and in the South, I just want to say this. If you, have only, if you think of your repentance merely in the past, like when I was six and I got baptized, I repented, and that's it? That's what you think of repentance is? Let me just lovingly say you don't have a clue what repentance is. That is not repentance. If you repented once, you didn't repent. Can I say that? If you repented once at some date in your past and you wrote it in your Bible or your grandmother did or your mom did and say, if you ever question your salvation, you go back and you look at that date, honey. You know what you're trusting in? You're not trusting in Jesus. You're trusting in a date in the Bible. A date in the Bible. No. No. Repentance is, yes, I repented when I gave my sins to Jesus and he gave his righteousness to me. I repented. But every day of my life, I am repenting and believing that same way. It's like I'm getting saved all over again every single day of my life. I'm trusting Jesus, I'm turning from sin. I'm trusting Jesus, I'm turning from sin. I'm trusting Jesus, I'm turning from sin. Repentance and belief go on and on and on and on and on and on in the life of the Christian. And that's important as we look at repentance here in, the, in, in Nineveh. Because we don't know if this was saving repentance. We can't say, look at this, revival, God saved the whole city. Maybe not. He relented from the disaster that he promised to send on the city, but there is no evidence that this city was converted. This city just realized that trouble was coming, and they pled with God to have mercy. I just think it's, not, I just think it's a little bit too optimistic to say, the whole city was converted. See that? 
Not necessarily. We don't get the whole story on Nineveh. But for this time, they did repent. And now we come to what God does. Number three, God relents. And this makes it all the more beautiful and wonderful and puzzling to me. And it should bother you too. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, when God saw what they did, all that, the fasting, the sackcloth, the crying out to God, the edict of the king, the humbling of themselves, the turning, the, at least calling people to turn. What did God do? How they turned from their evil way. Notice that's what draws the compassion of God. It's not the sackcloth. What draws God to, to relent of disaster that he had promised to send on Nineveh? Was it the fact that they fasted? No. Was it the fact they put on sackcloth? No. Was it the fact the king got off his throne? No. Was it the fact that the king issued an edict? No. Was it the fact that the people didn't give their kids or animals bread or water? No. What moved God's heart to compassion was them turning from their wickedness. That's what moved the heart of God. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. Wonderful word. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That is, he did not overthrow their city. He didn't kill everyone. He relented and let them live. Now, marvel here at the compassion and love of God. Just marvel. God looks down at the Taliban who says they're sorry, and he lets them go. He lets them go. God looks down at people who are known for cutting the noses off of faces. Who have a king that doesn't want his city destroyed. And people who don't want to lose their lives. They fast and pray and call out to God for mercy and God gives it. Can you see why Jonah's a little bit angry in chapter 4 just a little bit <laughs> in fact we're going to see next week he said I knew you'd do this I knew it as soon as I showed up you're going to do something kind for them don't do that they're going to go right back to being violent again if you show them mercy take them to the woodshed God wipe out the generation that'll teach them something but God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. He shows them compassion. His heart is warm toward them. And he forgives them. Or at least he, he, he relents of the disaster. And he says, I won't do it. I won't overturn their city. The compassion of God has a hair trigger, brothers and sisters. A hair trigger. God spots a king's effort at social reform and some sort of spiritual interest and some degree of humility and says, okay, 
pardon, relenting, not going to bring disaster on them. That is amazing. But the big question that should be rising in our minds right now is how in the world can God do that? That is wrong. That is wrong. For God to just go over to a city and say, look, I know, I know you've done all these things. I know it. And, and they've been wrong. Look, I know you've slaughtered innocent people. Look, I know that your, your hands are full of violence. Look, I know that you're, you're making the world a wicked place. You're contributing to ongoing wickedness and perversion. And you're living totally contrary to the way I made you. But you know what? I'm a loving God. Let's let bygones be bygones. But I'll forgive you. And if you have a just bone in your body, you're saying, no, I'm not going to worship a God like that. I will not worship this God. You know what, brothers and sisters, if this is where the story ends, I quit. I quit. I'm not worshiping a God like this. I am not. I will worship a God who is just and merciful, but not a God who's just merciful. Because that's not good. And that's not right. And here's where Jesus enters the story. So let's go to Luke, or actually Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And verse 38. We're entering into a scene in the life of Jesus where Jesus mentions the life of Jonah. Verse 38, Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Sounds like a description of Nineveh. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Now, we do see that while, according to the words of Christ, that while this national, this, this, this national sort of revival that took place in Nineveh, while not all of it was saving in its effects, some of it was. Some of it was. There were men and women and children legitimately in Nineveh who legitimately repented. Whether the king did or not, we don't know. But that were legitimately converted out of their wickedness and into a life of, of following the Lord. But what we see here 
is Jesus. They ask him for a sign. He says, I'm not going to give you any sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then he tells what that sign is. He says, it's just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. So I will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's he referring to? He's referring to his death and his resurrection to come. Jesus dies. Three days later, he comes back. Talking about his death and resurrection. And then he says in verse 41, the men of the men of uh, Nineveh are going to rise up and condemn you. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let me tell you why God is able to simply overlook and forgive the wicked moral sin of Jonah and the wicked immoral sin of the Ninevites. Jonah's nationalistic moral pride. Why God's able to forgive him and be patient with him and restore him. And why God is able to forgive the Ninevites who are repenting. Why God's able to do that. Why is God able to do that? Because Jesus spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's why. Because on the cross, Jesus absorbed the sin of the Ninevites and your sin if you're trusting in him. Jesus suffered the wrath of God for the violence that was in the hands of the Ninevites. For the slaughter that was characteristic of their culture, Jesus hung. For the wickedness that was part and parcel of their everyday existence, Jesus hung. For their ongoing, stubborn, rebellious, I will have it my way attitude, until Jonah's word came, Jesus hung. And that's exactly why God can go in and relent. Because God knows that the cross is coming. The cross where Jesus hangs and bleeds and suffers and dies under the wrath of God is going to come. And so God can pass over the sin of the Ninevites and pass over Jonah's sin. And pass over your sin and my sin without in any way compromising his justice, which is why we worship him, which is why we trust him, because we see in him a God who is described in Exodus 34 as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who forgives iniquity Transgression and sin, but who will no wise clear the guilty. That's the God he's revealed himself to be in Exodus 34, and that's the God he has proven himself to be throughout the whole Bible story. Just give him time. So when we look at Jonah and we stop and we say, that's not right. We've got we to lift that story up, put it in the whole big story of Scripture and say, ah, that makes sense. There's resolution. How God can be both merciful and just is at the cross, Christ. So how does this all apply to us as I close?
You are in, you and I are in the Nineveh story. In some way, we're in the Nineveh story, right? How how are we all in the Nineveh story? How are we all Ninevites? Though we didn't live in that time period, and we didn't commit some of those atrocities that they committed, and we, we weren't part of that culture, how are we still like Nineveh? God still has a word to preach to all of us. And the, pre, the word is, like Jesus said, repent or perish. It's all of that. It's that. And Jesus has come to us, and he's preached that word to us. He's reminded us that he's greater than Jonah. He went on a mission for God, too. He didn't get on a boat. He got in a manger. And he was raised, and he grew up, and he didn't flee from the will of God. He embraced the will of God. And he preached the message that Jonah preached. Mark 135, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he preached it. And he's giving us 40 days, which in the Bible is a period of patience. It's a period of reprieve. It's a period of opportunity. To repent, receive Christ, follow him in obedience. And most of us have done that by his grace. We've received the gift of repentance. We've embraced Christ. We're following him humbly. We're repenting of sin. We're believing the gospel. We're, we're treasuring the compassion and love of God for us. We're, we're loving the fact that he's this way and he's patient with us as he is with Jonah and Nineveh. We love that. And there we are. At one point in our lives, we recognized our need for Jesus. We recognized our need that I'm not okay with God. I've either, I've been one of two kinds of sinners. I've either been a moral sinner that has trusted in my own righteousness and my own goodness to get me into God's favor. I'm good, and that's sin. Or, on the other hand, we've been the immoral type sinner that has run as far away as we can from God, and God has come to us and said, you need to repent. But to both of them, to those who have a past more like Jonah and those who have a past more like the Ninevites, God comes to us and says through Jesus Christ, repent. And we spiritually put on our sackcloth, put on our ashes, humbled ourselves, cried out to God for mercy. I can remember the day I did it. Last week. And it was 15 years ago. And you do too. And you remember that. It's ongoing. Sackcloth. Feeling like humbling myself. Turning from my evil. And God continually in my life just relenting, 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 relenting. In fact, God's already relented. If you're in Christ, God doesn't have to relent anymore. God is eager to forgive. He is eager to love you and quick to forgive your sins, as we sang this morning. That is his posture towards his children. So the story of Nineveh is the story of all of us. It's a story of God sending, us repenting, and God relenting. And may God bless his word to your heart this morning. Let's pray. Father, we, we just marvel at who you are, and we thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your redemptive purpose 
We thank you that you are, you are quick to pardon all of our sins. We thank you that in Jesus Christ we have a righteousness that we have not earned. We've been given a sonship and a membership in your family that we have not earned, but that Jesus has earned for us. And so we thank you for him living in our place, for him dying in our place, for him rising in our place. We pray all this in his name. Amen.